Good morning and happy Mother's Day. I'm Charles Osgood, and this is Sunday morning. We'll be tipping our hat to mothers throughout the broadcast this morning, with particular attention to moms of what was once considered a very unlikely age. Never Say Never is our cover story, to be reported by Serena Olshul. Susan Willis was 43 when her son was born, and she'll be 46 when his sibling arrives. She's part of a growing national trend, women having children later than ever before. Why did you wait? I'm not the same person I was at 20. I think this is the child, the children I was meant to have, and I won't change a thing. You know, 40 is the new 30. You know, everybody's older. If you have somebody that's 28, it's like a teen pregnancy. Ahead this Mother's Day, never say never. From moms over 40 to a musically gifted son of Australia whose marriage is the stuff of movies. John Blackstone will be speaking for the record with country singer Keith Urban. With four Grammys and 19 number one songs to his name, Keith Urban sure knows how to make music. Baby. Music is so much a part of our family now. Mm, it's true. That because of him. But I won't live with regret. Chart topping Keith Urban later on Sunday morning. Because it's gone tomorrow, here today. I ain't gonna waste it. Our Sunday profile this morning is of Allison Janney, the star of the TV series, with its own unique take on motherhood, as Lee Cowan will show us. What are you doing? I can't sleep next to someone who doesn't value me. Since when? <laughs> On TV, Allison Janney plays a mom with a host of problems, not the least of which is she's in recovery. I know being an actor is you basically lie. <laughs> you, tell, you do things you haven't done before, but there's certain things I don't feel like I have a right to. But this role, Allison Janney says she does have a right to. But it comes with a pain she may never lose. The story ahead on Sunday morning. Oh, Baby is a different sort of Mother's Day story from our reader Braver. Okay, moms, if you think you've got a lot of family photos, well, everything these giant pandas do is recorded. Did the zoo have any idea how popular the panda cams would be. I don't think anybody could predict the incredible popularity, but what I love is that this is science in real life, in real time. Later on Sunday morning, pandemonium. There you go. Mo Rocca has a story of a loving son's decision to return home. Connor Knighton is on the trail to Petrified Forest National Park. Steve Hartman signs off on one very tall order and more. Just ahead, Mother's Day at the zoo. But first, never say never. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Say hello to Calla Lily Rose, all of five months old. Her mom is our own Robin Rose McFadden, one of our Sunday morning producers. Deciding when in life to have a baby is a very personal decision, and for more women these days, it appears to be a case of never say never. Our cover story is reported now by Serena Altschul. Um, yeah, so we got a few orders in for Mother's Day over the weekend. When Isla Donchin launched her baking business in 2009, she was hungry for success. What kind of schedule were you working? It sounds like you're like 24 hours, 24 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Nonstop. Nonstop. Thank you, ladies. Thanks for stopping in. Good seeing you. And it paid off. In just four years, she says Evelyn's Kitchen grew to be a seven-figure business. Then, in her early 40s, Donchin wanted to expand again in a different way. So why wait till your 40s to really try to have a baby? We just had other priorities. Work came first. Work came first. But after several years and one miscarriage, Donchin gave up trying, convinced she had waited too long. 
then, in July of 2014. I just felt lethargic and I didn't feel well. And I was sure that this was the first signs of menopause. I said, this must be early onset menopause at this point. And I Googled menopause and I didn't fit any. There was like none of the checklists that fit. And the next morning I took a pregnancy test. And another. And another. And another. <laughs> and another. I think I took, <laughs> I probably took like 13 or 14. I mean, literally, I was buying the five packs. They all came back positive. And on March 2nd, 2015, Brooklyn Emanuel was born. Five months later, Brooklyn's mother turned 46. Did you have any concerns or misgivings about being pregnant at your age? I was already thinking, like, I'm look crazy, like, taking her to kindergarten, and there's, you know, I'm going to be, like, the age of some people's grandparents, and it'll be like, this is my daughter. But it turns out she's not alone. Nationwide, the number of babies born to women 45 and older, while still relatively small, has more than tripled in the past two decades, and the average age of first-time mothers has climbed in every state across the country. Seems like everywhere you look these days, you see a woman over 40 with a beautiful little angel like this one. Meet my Vivian. She turned one last February. Her mother, over 40. Do you see this as a temporary phenomenon? Oh, no, this is no blip. This is a seismic <laughs> shift. Social psychologist Susan Newman says change on the American home front started with a revolution in the American workplace. I think the opening up of careers and jobs for women actually paved the way more than anything else. Women are staying in school longer. They're starting um, jobs but staying in them, getting themselves established on a career path if that's what they want. You know, 40 is a new 30. You know, everybody is older. If you have somebody that's 28, it's like a teen pregnancy, so... Dr. Joanne Stone is director of maternal fetal medicine at Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. She says waiting has its risks. So one in five couples who are over 40 will have infertility. And for those who do get pregnant. A woman who's 40 may have about a one in 50 chance or one in 40 chance that the fetus may have a chromosomal abnormality. And that increases by a lot. And then there are medical complications that are higher as well. So developing high blood pressure during pregnancy, developing diabetes during pregnancy, premature birth, stillbirth is higher. But with medical advances, the odds of limiting those risks have gotten better. So have the odds of actually conceiving. If you can kind of rattle off the ways one can get pregnant these days. So there still is the old-fashioned good old way of getting pregnant. Sex. Sex, right? <laughs> Probably the most fun way of getting pregnant. Um, there's seeking fertility treatment, so using your own eggs, but maybe getting a little bit of help with either some um, oral medication or injections and insemination. Um, or there's in vitro fertilization, which can involve your own eggs, could involve frozen, uh, frozen eggs or frozen embryos from an earlier time period. Or there's also the option for donor eggs. The use of assisted reproductive technology has more than tripled in the past two decades. But it can cost tens of thousands of dollars, and it's not always covered by insurance. Still... Having the ability to freeze eggs and embryos and make the decision when I was ready, as ready as I was ever going to be, I couldn't have done it without science. On the day we met Dr. Stone, she was also visited by 45-year-old patient Susan Willis, a single mother pregnant again. Her first child, almost two and a half. And you're feeling okay? Yeah, I feel fine. Good. Baby looks perfect, good fluid. I didn't want to not have children because I didn't meet the right guy. So she relied on her backup plan instead. At 40, she froze embryos, her own eggs matched with sperm from a hand-picked donor. How did you decide on the sperm donor? It's kind of like online shopping. I had their photographs and their interviews and their likes and dislikes. And I spent a Friday afternoon narrowing it down, and I had a clear favorite. From the moment I saw his picture, I had a clear favorite. An embryo was implanted at age 42. At 43, she gave birth to her son. I think technology has made it so 
that women do have what they think of in their minds as a cushion, a security blanket. And with that security blanket, social psychologist Susan Newman says women are reshaping the American family. The fact of the matter is that families are getting smaller and smaller. You know, some women who are older are having second children, but the majority of them, especially the ones who use in vitro fertilization, uh, two-thirds of those women are stopping at one. Will that change things? We will have fewer aunts and uncles. But I don't really see that as a problem because we will use friends as substitute aunts and uncles. How old is too old? I, I would hate to put an absolute cutoff. I mean, I think being 80 would probably be unreasonable. I love you. You know? <laughs> 80's too old. I, I, you hear that, yeah. Mom? Okay. You know, I, 80 may be too old, but 40-something feels just right, at least yeah. for the mothers we met. I think I always knew I was, I always wanted to be a mom. Oh, McDonald had a farm. I never once considered a life without children. It was the best thing I ever did. What's the cow say? Moo. Moo. With a moo moo here and a moo there. Here moo, there moo, everywhere moo moo. Coming up? Now, clearly under present circumstances, this campaign cannot go on. A little monkey business. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. I'm not a beaten man. I'm an angry and defiant man. I've said that I bend, but I don't break. And believe me, I'm not broken. And now, a page from our Sunday morning almanac. May 8th, 1987. 29 years ago today. Gary Hart officially dropped out of the race today. He made a statement. He took no questions. The day former Colorado Senator Gary Hart quit the Democratic race for president in the face of a media frenzy. Now, clearly under present circumstances, this campaign cannot go on. A media frenzy many remember today solely by this photograph of Hart and a woman named Donna Rice on the dock next to a yacht called Monkey Business. I do not have to answer that question. The question was, have you ever committed adultery? And Gary Hart never really answered it. Just a few days before he had dropped out, an anonymous tip about a possible affair had led Miami Herald reporters to confront Hart outside his Washington townhouse. Their story ran the next day. The very same day, the New York Times printed quotes from an earlier Hart interview. When asked about rumors of infidelity, he had answered, follow me around, I don't care, I'm serious. If anybody wants to put a tail on me, go ahead. They'd be very bored. Gary Hart fled to his mountain retreat in Colorado Thursday. To boring, it was not. With that statement giving them license, the media launched into full scandal mode. I'm a proud man, and I'm proud of what I've accomplished. And within a week, candidate Hart announced the inevitable. I refuse to submit my family and my friends and innocent people and myself to further rumors and gossip. It's simply an intolerable situation. Not content with a simple statement of withdrawal, Gary Hart went on to deliver this lecture. We're all going to have to seriously question a system for selecting our national leaders that reduces the press of this nation to hunters and presidential candidates to being hunted. For all of Hart's protestations, the release of that monkey business photo was all most people needed to see. And with that incident, the precedent of non-stop 24-7 coverage of the personal failings of politicians from both parties was firmly established. Something all candidates, current and future, ignore at their peril. At least in spirit, I will be with you. Thank you very much. I got you. I got you. Just ahead. It's okay. Coming home. Coming home to care for an ailing mother is a path many a grown-up child has followed. With Mo Rocca now, a case in point. If 10 years ago someone had said to you, you're going to go back to Paris, Missouri to take care of your mother, what would you have said? I would have said, what other tragic thing can happen to me on this planet? 
For 25 years, George Hodgman was one of the publishing industry's top book and magazine editors. Do you feel like you're really far away from New York? Yeah, I do. But five years ago, he found himself back in his hometown of Paris, Missouri. I got you. I got you. Taking care of his widowed mother, Betty. I've had this terrible fear all my life that I couldn't do this. I was an only child. I was going to be alone with this. And it involved all kinds of things that made me terribly uncomfortable. Taking over my mother's taxes. I can barely do my own taxes. You know, I thought the Medicare donut hole was a breakfast special for seniors. At first, he thought of it more as a visit. Okay. Then weeks became months, months became years, and life came down to casseroles. I had to come up with three meals a day. I was like, how do they know all these things to make? Because I'm, you know, I'm down to jello and tuna fish casserole with potato chips on it. And, and maybe I'll buy barbecued potato chips because maybe that would like throw a new kind of zesty thing into it. We have all the medicine and we have bridge on May 20th. He began to write for therapy. Even though she's old, I think she's more beautiful than ever, softer. It was a way to not feel sad and kind of get it out of my head. The writing became a book, Bettyville, a best-selling memoir. When dealing with older women, a trip to the hairdresser and two Bloody Marys goes further than any prescription drug. I was able to write the book because I didn't hear New York talking to me. If I had gone to them and said, you know, I want to write this book about a fat man and his 90-year-old mother, I mean, I would have been laughed at. Good. <laughs> this one? Yeah. The book is about Betty and George, but it's also about George coming to terms with the town where he was raised. I thought of this place as uh, kind of church territory, and as a gay person, I was not so comfortable. You thought of this as, that's my past. Yeah, that's my past, and it's not my world. <laughs> Coming home meant driving along those old, familiar roads. Tulips. See the tulips? <laughs> yeah. Oh, they're pretty. Uh-huh. My entire summation of my mother is this woman with dyed blonde hair, and a Kent cigarette and racing that car to meet the school bus and with us kind of singing along with this pop music. Betty played the piano at her church for years and she kept on playing even when dementia clouded her mind and her fingers began to fumble. I don't expect that she'll play for church again because the last time she played for church, she dropped her music on the floor and uttered a word that one probably should not utter during a church service. Starts with? It starts with God and it ends with, damn it. Guess what's here? George says he's no martyr. He came home for one simple reason. I came back here because I like her. I just like her. Both of you are funny. Do you? laugh around the house, both of you? A lot. We do. Is there a favorite book you've read in the last year? Not a favorite. I think I like Truman. Books about American history are fine, but her guilty pleasure? The Secret Confessions of Ava Gardner. It's the most vulgar book I ever read. <laughs> it is. Ava Gardner's Secret Confessions. But you enjoyed it. <laughs> She eats a half a grapefruit every morning. <laughs> George has come to appreciate the people of Paris as never before. And you write about kindness now, fresh cut flowers in your mailbox. I think those gestures that say, I'm here for you, I'm seeing you, I'm seeing your struggle, it sounds cliche, but it's not. What did you think of everybody thinking of you as a celebrity. I'm not a celebrity. You're not a celebrity? <laughs> You're a mother of one. Yes, Betty's son George has become quite the man about town. I never fancied myself an expert caregiver. I still don't, 
but suddenly I'm like the Mick Jagger of elder care. When we visited with George, his biggest worry was that Betty was worried about him. I think my mother has this feeling that I'm here taking care of her and that I'm in a kind of retreat. And I would like her to come to terms with the fact that she has produced somebody who really cares about her. And I would like for her to wind up feeling that I was happy. Betty Hodgman died a few months after our visit. You did so good. Just shy of her 93rd birthday. But she lives on in her son's loving memoir. And George Hodgman still lives in Paris, Missouri, a place he now calls home. Still to come, making music with Keith Urban. Later, we catch up with Mark. Mom. Gotta go. My mother has a canoe. Allison Janney. Open one A. What's happening? Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. John Wayne, Superman, California. I'm a Chris Christopherson, son and morning. I'm a mom and dad singing along to Don McLean. Keith Urban is one of the biggest names in country music. How Urban comes up with all of those country hits is one of the things he'll share now with John Blackstone. For the record. At his rehearsal studio in Nashville, Keith Urban is getting ready for a world tour that begins in June. Funny thing is, is you have these songs, you've written them, we've recorded them, and we've never played them live. We have to rearrange everything, but if we could sit on that six minor for a while... It's a brand new thing, so opening night's always interesting. <laughs> Get out on the road and you play stuff, and it's amazing how much stuff in theory just doesn't work in practice. That feels like that could go somewhere, right? And then releasing it into the... The new songs are from a new album, Ripcord, just out last Friday. Singles released early have already landed at the top of the country charts. And with four Grammys to his name, Urban has a deep reservoir of hits stretching back 16 years. It's one reason he tours with nearly two dozen guitars. We have songs in our set list that we've played for a lot of years, and sometimes for me as a guitar player, if I just play a different guitar, it can become a slightly newer song, play differently, and you're engaged. So. And there's certainly those songs that you've got to play over and over. That, that we get to play over and over again. Exactly. Thank goodness people still want to hear them. It's hard to believe Urban, who is now 48, could be any happier than when he has a guitar in his hands. <laughs> Hi, baby. When his wife, Nicole Kidman, dropped in, she gave us some insight into his songwriting. Oh, I'm good, I'm good. He will have worked all day and he'll come home and go, I haven't got the song and then suddenly the song will come together and he'll be writing and and music is so much a part of our family now. Mm. The great thing about being artists of being I'm an actor and he's a musician songwriter. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people may not be um, but you have a innate understanding of um, what it takes to do the work especially if you want it to be authentic and true. They've been married 10 years and have two daughters. The girls and I will go on tour this summer. We'll be out there but you're dancing. The <laughs> <laughs> we like dancing. Some of his new songs were written in London last year, while Kidman was starring in the play Photograph 51. For me, deciding to go back on stage was inspired by him when I see him perform, because it's like, wow. <laughs> Well, it's like extraordinary love coming from the audiences. Mm. And I see what he gives and what they give back. And it's really, it's beautiful energy. Oh my gosh, that moment when it's all one, it's amazing. Urban began performing as a teenager growing up in Australia. His parents, Bob and Marion, were big fans of American country music. With school at 15, what'd yeah. your parents say? They totally got it. <laughs> you know, it's hard because I get asked by parents all the time, 
I can't advise anybody anything. Everyone's got to find their own path. But because I was playing in a band on the weekends and the band would play without me during the week. And because I've been playing guitar since I was six, they could see this is what I'm going to do. And I was willing to work. My mom and dad both strong work ethic. Your father was a drummer, lots of music in the family, but you didn't read music in a traditional way? No, I failed music at school, which was a real drag. Because <laughs> it's all theory-based, and I wasn't theory-based. I learned by ear. I got taught a basic chord, and then another basic chord, and it was just like monkey see, monkey do. That's how, how I learned. His goal was to get to Nashville. So how were those early audiences in here? He made it in 1992. Tough. This is where you arrived in Nashville? In, yeah, in a way, yeah. This, this club, 12th and Porter's been here a long time. I really wasn't prepared for how hard it was going to be, how long it was going to take. A lot of stress, part of the challenge along the way. Well, you said you didn't start drinking until your 20s, but then you, you made up for it. <laughs> People go, well, just do your best. And I went, I'm doing my best. And I'm just smashing into a brick wall. What now? What now? Like, I don't know what to do. And then you got through that once, met Nicole, and you almost blew it. <laughs> yeah. I had to surrender a lot to the struggles I had and get help with that and just be willing to recognize that I was alcoholic. Simple as that. Kidman's support was crucial in his recovery. Meeting her and getting married wasn't life changing, it was life beginning. Literally like, okay, now life starts. When you go and see Keith live, that's when you really get to know him and you see the, the musicianship. I mean, it's extraordinary. And I know nothing about guitar other than I, I like how it sounds. But I know people nothing come about acting, so, <laughs> so, we're, so we're a good match. <laughs> song actually opens up the album. It's called Gone Tomorrow, Here Today. Urban says he can still almost hear his dad keeping the beat when he's writing a song. Does the music come first? Do the words come first? I hope anything comes. <laughs> anything, I'll grab anything. You know, my dad was a drummer. Rhythm such a deep part of my whole being, really. And this is a, a ganjo. Six-string banjo, yeah. He used his ganjo to show how a song comes to life from a bit of rhythm and a few chords. It was really just a kind of a cool little drum beat. It was very simple, just a simple just really straight ahead. That rhythm thing's playing. And then this little thing sits underneath, it's like. And everything starts to sort of dance together. I heard this sound. <laughs> So we just start playing that, and that may just go forever, you know, and you're just sort of digging on it. You're <laughs> just sort of in the zone. It's like a trance. Things will come, you know. Ah, no, no, it's the melody. <laughs> you know. Yeah, I don't know what I'm singing, but it's coming out somehow, you know. Um, but I won't live with regret. Carpe diem is the secret. Cause it's gone tomorrow, here today. Urban's influences often come from far outside country music. He seems as comfortable with Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones as with any star from Nashville. They say life is so On his new song, Sun Don't Let Me Down, he worked with Nile Rodgers, who's been producing hits since the days of disco. Then he invited Mr. Worldwide, the rapper Pitbull, to join in. It was one of those moments where I thought, he would be really good on that song. Luckily, he loved the song, and he did something on it. The next thing we knew, it's becoming more like... Keith Urban, Mr. Worldwide. And he's suddenly all over the song. <laughs> ah. And of course, further on the song, he does a full verse. Take a shot for the soldiers in the field, yes, for the freedom, and that's for real. I love the fact that those things can just sort of organically happen through hearing and thinking and putting things together. The one dark cloud recently in Urban's life was the death of his father in December. It's a tough thing to lose a parent. Yeah, very much. I'm grateful that he got to see the field being fruitful. So all of the support and work that he put in, he could see it. He saw me happily married, and all the things I think as a parent you want to see from your kids. Urban's music often takes country in new directions. He's made a signature of a driving sound that aims to lift people up and make the most of every minute. I've always had that feeling, I have for many, many years, that everything is now. This is all there is, is now. 
like in the moment. Next, a boy Whoa. and his dog. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. From time to time, we like to share outstanding examples of animation with our audience. To wit, the present. From German film student Jacob Fry. After you see it, you won't be a bit surprised to learn that the film has won multiple awards and won Jacob a job at Disney. He wants to play. Ed? They're very curious, especially at this age. Cute as a button. Oh, Bebe. Bebe is the giant panda born last summer at Washington's National Zoo. And this morning, Rita Braver has some Bebe pictures for us. Easy target. Good boy. Okay, moms, Good let's boy. face it. This baby may be cuter than yours and a lot more famous. He's Bebe. Born at the Smithsonian Institution's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. last August. His arrival made headlines, even though he wasn't much to look at then. 
They are about one nine hundredth the size of mother. They're really, really tiny. They always say like a stick of butter. They're like a right? stick of butter. Yeah, exactly. But they're really tough. Holding them in your hand, you'd be surprised at how sturdy they feel. They're born hairless and blind. Yes, they are blind and deaf. Marty Geary is a panda keeper, one of about two dozen employees, aided by sixty volunteers who keep the giant pandas happy and healthy. Bebe will stay with Mother Mei Xiang till he's about two. Father Tian Tian and big sister Bao Bao have their own separate, specially designed habitats, as pandas are usually solitary creatures. Almost every move they make is captured by the zoo's famous panda cams. Remember when this video went viral last winter? Did the zoo have any idea how popular the panda cams would be. I don't think anybody could predict the incredible popularity, but what I love is that this is science in real life, in real time. Brandy Smith, who oversees the zoo's panda operation, says the cameras help volunteers keep detailed logs of each animal's daily activities. It must be getting warm outside because She's indicating that she's warm. Right now, we're looking at Meishang and Bebe to look at mother-cub interactions, hoping we can learn from that and hoping we can help make more pandas in the future. More pandas because they are a highly endangered species. Found only in China, there are only about 1,800 in the wild, as humans have encroached on their territory. Nope. Good boy. Get all the way in. So the pandas at the National Zoo get frequent checkups. And in a rare behind-the-scenes visit, we got to see how they're trained to cooperate. I don't think you're in the middle of the scale. <laughs> Biologist Lori Thompson coaxes Bebe to weigh in. Oh, 43 pounds, 43 and a half pounds. The reward, a sweet potato. He's curious about anything new that is in his enclosure. Am I allowed to pet him? No. <laughs> yes, these cuddly creatures can bite. At almost three years and 180 pounds, Bao Bao, Bebe's sister, Good does girl. her training through a cage. All the way in. Open. Good. In exchange Good for girl. a delicious stream of honey water. Good girl. It's how she grows accustomed to everything Open. from dental exams. Open. Good. To Good blood girl. tests according to panda keeper Tally Wiles. Girl, if you do a blood stick for her, does it hurt her? They might feel it initially like a little pinch, like a person does as well, but she's getting that honey reward, which is much more fantastic than anything she's going through. It was panda diplomacy that brought the first two pandas to the National Zoo. I think they're adorable and endearing creatures. Sing Sing and Ling Ling were a gift from the Chinese government in 1972, after President Nixon's historic visit to the country. But that panda parent never produced a cub that survived. In contrast, Bebe's parents, who are here on loan from the Chinese government, have produced three healthy cubs, including Tai Shan, now almost 11 and living in China. But it hasn't been easy. The giant pandas are a species that is very difficult to reproduce and care for in captivity, primarily because our knowledge of their biology has been uh, very rudimentary until the last decade or so. Stephen Monfort is director of the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute in Front Royal, Virginia. A key mission here is studying panda reproduction. The female only matures and ovulates one time per year. So you have about a 36-hour window of fertility once a year with a giant panda. Make sure. By collecting urine samples, researchers have been able to pinpoint exactly when she is fertile and ready for a visit from Tian Tian. But so far, they haven't been able to connect the parts, if that's I've got a, that right. That's a nice way of putting it. There's an anatomical mismatch, let's say. To tell you the truth, ladies, it's apparently a performance issue on the male panda's part. One, two, three. So Bebe was conceived by artificial insemination. Sadly, his twin did not survive. 
but every panda that makes it is considered a minor miracle. They're still under threat, and so we are in a race against time. We have much, much more work to do. Bao Bao and Bebe will be sent to China within a few years, so we should enjoy them while we can. And the zoo's Brandy Smith says there's a primal reason why we are so delighted by the antics of these creatures. When you see something that touches your heart, there's a biochemical reaction. So you produce the same chemicals associated with childbirth. They make you happier. Eat your sweet potato. You got it? You become a better person by watching these pandas. Hello. Next. What you want drink? A grande gesture. Caramel frappuccino, please. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Keeping the customer happy can be a tall order for anyone behind a counter, which is why the server Steve Hartman watched in action decided to go the extra mile. For a deaf person like Ibby Paracha of Leesburg, Virginia, getting the drink you want at Starbucks can be a tall order. But Ibby says not here, thanks to a barista who recently did something truly Hello. grande. When I came in, the first thing she did was she wrote the note. So I thought maybe she had a question for me or something. But it really wasn't a question at all. And as I read through it, it shocked me. He immediately posted this picture of the note, which read, I've been learning ASL, American Sign Language just so you can have the same experience as everyone else. What can I get for you today? That barista is Crystal Payne. Two Trenta iced coffees. She's new here. In fact, she'd only waited on Ibby once before deciding to go home, go on the internet, and learn sign language for him. Maybe I spent like three or more hours on it. Getting ready to take one order? Yeah. If he's a regular and I want to make that connection with my regulars, I should be able to at least Ask him what he wants to drink. What you want drink. Today, Crystal knows everything she needs to wait on Ibby. Caramel frappuccino, please. And that really is the extent of their interaction. To Crystal, it's no big deal. But to Ibby, who says navigating a hearing world is often frustrating, what Crystal did was a wonderful gesture that he will never forget. He even saved the note. It's something that was very inspirational, so I wanted to, to keep it in the frame. Sometimes, customer service gets a bad rap, and it's often well-deserved. Hi, what can I get for you today? But there are those frontline workers who go above and beyond, not for a tip or because the boss is watching, but because kindness is who they are, and the customer, all they care about. And it's just something that really gave me genuine happiness. Even now? Yeah, even now, still smiling. <laughs> still to come. Mom. I've watched you lick cocaine crumbs out of a shag carpet. Allison Janney, TV's mom. <laughs> and later, two park rangers. Hands off. I am so, so sorry for taking the petrified wood. I didn't know it was so special. <laughs> I never went off on a bender. Those were three-day weekends where I tried to find you a father. It's Sunday morning on CBS, and here again is Charles Osgood. Allison Janney plays a mom who doesn't exactly fit the Mother's Day card mold in the hit CBS series, Mom. It's a role shaped by Janney's real-life experiences, as Lee Cowan shows us in this Sunday profile. And the only way you can get through any, anything in life is, is through laughter. Um, it's, um, it's the key, and that's end scene. <laughs> And there you go. <laughs> That's comedy right there. <laughs> Allison Jenny's career is so bright of late, she really doesn't need lights. Ready and action. Her latest Emmy, her seventh, by the way, came for a performance in a show that is decidedly unique. Gotta go, my mother has a canoe. <laughs> We're not saying that just because it's Mother's Day and the show happens to be called Mom, or because it airs here on CBS. We're saying it because this particular sitcom is actually a pretty noble experiment. Nice. She's sleeping at your house tonight. We don't um, shy away from real life affecting these characters, even though it's 
it's a multicam comedy. Jenny plays Bonnie Plunkett, a recovering addict, helping her daughter Christy, played by Anna Ferris, who's also struggling with addiction. Now, that doesn't sound too funny, but it is. Mom, I've watched you lick cocaine crumbs out of a shag carpet. <laughs> it's not a sin to be thrifty, dear. Although it's a comedy, it takes a very serious look at the tenuous nature of sobriety the on-again, off-again struggle against drugs and alcohol, and the grim reality of relapses. Jody overdose. Is she going to be okay? She's gone. Oh. You can't do a show about recovery to not show the reality of it, which some people don't make it. Uh, roll sound. Jenny knows that all too well because she watched her younger brother, Hal, go through it. He struggled with addiction most of his life, which leaves Janny sometimes struggling on set. It definitely played a part in why I took this show. I wanted to, I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay, it's okay. She tried desperately to help her brother recover, but five years ago, he committed suicide. You'd been around that world and you wanted to... I did. Uh, I did. I was uh, around the world of recovery a lot, trying to get my, you know, trying to get my brother to want to recover. Uh, he didn't. He lost his, his battle with addiction and other things. And, and I felt like this was important for me to take a part like this and, and, and be a part of a show that, uh, that showed people in recovery and also showed that there was uh, um, hope. So I just want to thank all of you for being here with us today. Last week, she was invited to participate in a White House panel with the Surgeon General to talk about the issues of recovery and addiction. I felt very um, qualified to take this job just because of what I went through with my brother. It's terrifying to be Alice and Janney in front of people. It's great to be Bonnie Plunkett, and, you know, on your TV. But it's scary to, to be me. <laughs> <laughs> She's well known for playing a wide range of people who aren't her, including playing that mom on Mom, something she's not in real life. Mom. She's gone from a neglected housewife in American Beauty. I want you to meet somebody. This is Jane. Hi. What happened to Constantine? To a Mississippi socialite in the help. Did you fire her? We were just a job to her, honey. With them, it's all about money. She went from the alcoholic neighbor with a wandering eye in the way, way back. You brought me a man. How thoughtful. Hello, sailor. To a wife discovering her sexuality in Showtime's Masters of Sex. Drink up now. You're going to need your strength. I was trained to go from different style, different style to different style, and, and, and that, was, that was just what I learned to do. But it does seem like, I don't know how you're in so many places at the same oh, time, it seems like. I, <laughs> I don't know, Lee. I'm just glad. <laughs> I'm just glad that that it, it it happened, and I haven't been typecast into one sort of role. Typecast, no, but it's hard not to think of Jenny in one role in particular. Arthur. She took home four Emmys for her performances as C.J. Craig, the perfectly unflappable White House spokesman in Aaron Sorkin's The West Wing. Steve? A Democratic senator says if this goes down, it'll stall momentum on the rest of We're not of responding to a blind quote. We just assume you made it up. <laughs> I'm not kidding. Thank you. While in Washington last week, she made a surprise visit to the briefing room, pretending to fill in for real-life spokesman Josh Ernest. Let's be honest, I'm, um, I'm better at this than he is anyway. She's pretty convincing in the part. So much so, even today, people ask her advice on politics. Growing up, did you, were you a political family? Did you talk about politics at dinner? Did oh, God, you... no. No, 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 no. Really? Uh, no. So this was a completely strange world for you. Yes, and one that I felt such a pretender. I'm not interested in politics. I, I hate politics. It just, <laughs> I cannot stand to watch what's going on right now. It makes me, I, I just close my eyes. I don't want to hear it. I don't want, I don't. Jenny grew up in Dayton, Ohio. Her father played jazz on the family piano. Her mother was an actress. That's where the bug first bit. While in a play at Kenyon College, she was discovered by one very famous alum, Paul Newman. 
and his wife, Joanne Woodward. They were so impressed, they encouraged her to move to New York and enroll in the neighborhood playhouse. But Jenny was a late bloomer. Her first break on Broadway didn't come until she was 38. Part of the problem, she says, her height. She's six feet tall, although Jenny prefers to call it 5'12". I was playing, you know, 40-year-old women when I was, you know, 20. Were there times you thought about giving it up? All the time. Really? Oh, yeah. I went to the um, Johnson O'Connor Institute in New York City um, and took an aptitude test. They told me that I would make a great systems analyst. (laughs) Systems analyst? What does that mean, even? No idea. (laughs) She had grown up wanting to be a figure skater, but it was a dream that ended when she ran through a closed sliding glass door as a teen. You ran right through the... Well, I, we did, I hit it, and then the glass fell on top of me, so it sort of guillotined my leg. And, and how bad was it? It was bad. Lost an artery, cut tendons. Um, it, was, it was a bad accident. No more ice skating, but she could still dance. Something she still loves to do, by the way. Only now, it's Zumba classes that she occasionally takes with her friend and mom co-star, Jamie Presley. I want you to push that booty out just a little bit. I do love to dance. I don't go to clubs anymore, really, because... Who does? Because who does? <laughs> At 56, Allison Janney has a lot to smile about. While her brother Hal is never far from her heart, with Mom, she's found a comfortable intersection of both her personal and professional passions. And it gives her the chance to revel in her choice to never become that systems analyst. Can you imagine yourself doing anything else? No. For a career? No. There is nothing else I can do. I can't imagine ever retiring. I'm just going to keep doing it. I will. Forever. (laughs) (laughs) Next, this place was set aside because this is by far one of the largest accumulations you'll ever see. On the trail to the petrified forest. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. When it comes to his love for our national parks, Arcana Knighton makes no apologies. Not so for some of the visitors who preceded him to his latest stop. I like the handwritten. Oh, this looks like a kid, right? Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of kids. To Park Ranger, I am so, so sorry for taking the petrified wood. I didn't know it was so special. (laughs) Uh, With the awesome kid spelling. It's great. Matt Smith is the museum curator at Petrified Forest National Park. You can see it has these sharp recurved teeth. uh, His archives are full of an impressive collection of ancient fossils, but he also looks after a small batch uh, of letters. Oh gosh, this is a manifesto. Yeah, yeah, I've had a four pager. A four-pager? Yeah, yeah. The letters are apology notes, tales of remorse, written by reformed criminals. These are all pieces. At the park, the petrified wood is everywhere. It lines the trails, it tops the hillsides. This place was set aside because this is by far one of the largest accumulations you'll ever see, and possibly the largest in the world. 225 million years ago, This dry stretch of Northeast Arizona was lush and green, home to some of the early dinosaurs. The trees that stood tall back then were buried in sediment and fossilized, frozen in time. Today, that wood is beautiful. And so, as paleontologist Bill Parker explains, rangers occasionally see visitors trying to smuggle a piece home as a souvenir. People tend to have uh, a guilty conscience, right? And that's, generally, there's, there's telltale signs of that. There are signs that attempt to deter would-be wood burglars. It's a crime to take anything out of the park. But, not surprisingly, people still do. What is surprising is that some of that wood has come back. This is a... Um box of material that was returned to the park, and there's two pieces of wood in here. The letters that accompany the heavy packages speak of a long-ago theft that's weighed heavy on the conscience. If you take petrified wood, 
Beware of the consequences. You should... Oh, this is a poem. Oh. If you take petrified wood, beware of the consequences you should. Though enshrined on a shelf, still brought him ill health. Some things are plain no good. Some people ascribe a curse to the wood. I don't know how much I buy that because if you're, if you're the kind of person who would take something from a national park, maybe you just have poor judgment skills. I don't know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> As a junior ranger, I am responsible. The park used to play up the curse. They put all the letters out on display, which just led to more letters. We may have just been encouraging people unwittingly to do the wrong thing by emphasizing it, you know, overemphasizing it, saying, you know, bluefin tuna are going extinct, so you better eat some sushi or something like that, you know. <laughs> Rangers once claimed they were losing a ton of wood a month until they asked around and realized nobody really knew where that number came from. Could it be the problem wasn't actually all that bad? About 10 years ago, we got the idea. We had all this photography of the wood. We went out, found the exact angles they were shot at, and reshot them. And we were absolutely amazed to see that everything was still the same. So Petrified Forest recently changed its messaging, thanking visitors for doing the right thing. Because most of them do. Unfortunately, for the few who do so belatedly, the wood that's sent back to the park can't actually go back in the park. We can't put it back because somebody who's going out to study that stuff could inadvertently pick up something that has no reason to be there and botch their results. So it ends up here in what the rangers call the conscience pile. Tucked away down a service road, the pile contains years of returned wood, which honestly makes writing a letter and spending a bunch of money on postage to send that wood back all seem a little pointless. But guilt is a trip. And in every case, it's because somebody valued their experience here and valued the thing that they're mailing back. That's how much they're willing to give back in order to do the right thing, because they feel like this is a special place. America's veneration of motherhood, great as it is, doesn't go far enough in the view of Silicon Valley executive Susan Wojcicki. In 1999, I joined a small company called Google when I was four months pregnant. Back then, we were a startup with only 15 employees and no maternity leave policy. Today, we have a great policy. Any woman at Google or YouTube in the United States gets 18 weeks of paid maternity leave. Last year, I took my fifth, yes, fifth maternity leave at Google. Having experienced how valuable paid maternity leave is to me, my family, and my career, I never thought of it as a privilege. But the sad truth is that according to the UN, we're only one of two countries in the world that doesn't offer government-mandated paid maternity leave. The other country, Papua New Guinea. Well, a few generous employers and a handful of states do offer it, that only covers 12% of private sector workers, according to the Department of Labor. Now millions of our people will no longer have to choose between their jobs and their families. The Family and Medical Leave Act of 1993 was a step in the right direction, but it calls for unpaid leave and doesn't cover 40% of workers in the U.S. According to one survey, a quarter of all women in the U.S. return to work fewer than 10 days after giving birth, leaving them less time to bond with their children, making breastfeeding more difficult, and increasing their risk of postpartum depression. But paid maternity leave isn't just good for mothers and babies. It's good for business, too. After California instituted paid leave, a survey found that 91% of all employers said the policy either boosted profits or had no effect. Employers also noted improved productivity, higher morale, and reduced turnover. I've been lucky to have the support of a company that values motherhood. But support for motherhood shouldn't be a matter of luck. It should be a matter of course. Paid maternity leave is good for mothers, families, and business. 
America should have the good sense to join nearly every other country in the world in providing it. I'm Charles Osgood. Please join us again next Sunday morning. Till then, I'll see you on the radio.